0: about them being signs pointing to something from chapter 12 on to the end of the gospel of John is called the book of glory and so you see here the idea as we get to chapter 11 which is one chapter shy of the book of glory that Jesus is going to begin to start talking about glory he's been talking about it all along but here he says this is going to happen because of God's glory so that I might be glorified. He's looking forward. It's a sign pointing towards something. Now, I tell you that part so you understand then why I want to talk about these things, about this being a sign. What difference does that make to us today? Great, John wrote a gospel some 1,900 years ago. And we might ask ourselves, so of what relevance is that to us today? I think many people today who walk around don't really ask questions like, is Christianity true or is it false? What they really want to know is, does Christianity do anything for me? What real benefit is it? What difference does it make? Why is it important? I think that's a question that even people within the church ask. And maybe that explains why oftentimes we see such a failing To really do anything that Jesus calls us to because we really don't believe anything about Him. It's just what we do. We go to church, it's kind of the habit we have. We play golf on Monday mornings, we go to church on Sunday mornings, we go for coffee with our friend on Tuesday mornings, we get up and go to work, we brush our teeth, we hopefully floss, we do all these other things. But the real question is, does it really matter? Does any of this have any effect on people? And see, I think that in many ways is a fair question for people to ask. What difference does it make that Jesus of Nazareth came to earth? What is all the fuss? And is there really any difference between Buddha and Muhammad and Jesus and nobody That would be for the atheist. Is there really a big difference? And what I want to begin to appeal to you is, is that there is a difference. That what John is writing about is saying there's something that really matters. Because see, the other part of our culture will say this, if at the end of the day, even if it doesn't make a difference, if it makes you happy, if it makes you feel better, if you're really glad about it and you're a better person for it, great! that's good. Good for you. And see, what I want to say is is that Jesus stands and confronts all of that and says, that cannot be. I can't be a good person. I can't be one of the many good guys that have come to planet earth and done some good guy things. You just can't do Jesus that way. You could talk about Gandhi that way. He seems to be a pretty good guy who did some pretty decent things. You could talk about Martin Luther King Jr. that way. He was a pretty good guy who did some pretty decent things. You could talk about a lot of people that way. What you can't do is talk about Jesus that way. You cannot look at somebody who makes such claims and claims to do such things and have followers who make such radical claims and say, well, he's a good guy. No, he's not. Not if what he's saying is not true. There's nothing good about it. So I want to begin to look this morning and say, for those of us that are overtly skeptical, and for those of us who really are skeptical but keep up our religious fronts, I want us to look and say, does this really matter? And if so, what are you going to do in response? So let's begin to look at this passage and ask some questions. The first thing I want us to look at here. And I know for many who have grown up in the church, they're going to look at this passage and say, okay, glory, there it is. So now we've got to run off on the glory train and got to talk about God's glory because that's what the sermon needs to be about. Well, in some ways it does, but what I really want you to be able to do is take glory and kind of hold it in suspense for a while because it's going to come back towards the end of this part of the gospel. But I want to hold it for a few minutes and look at some other aspects of Jesus which fill in what that glory looks like. One of the things I want you to notice about Jesus, and the first point we're going to look at this morning, is the love of Jesus. Now, this is striking, and I want you to notice that somehow glory and love are wedded. Jesus says, This has all taken place so that God will be glor- so that I will be glorified. It's all about God's glory. And then we go immediately into the text to and Jesus loved Mary and Martha and Lazarus. I want you to think about that. Because see, to me, that's compelling. It, it, it does something for me when I think about in a world that often is pretty cold and people oftentimes can say, eh, we love you, we like you, we think you're great. But you and I all know that there's a handful of people that when it really comes down to it, that we would say, those people really understand what it means to love me. There may even be some in here this morning that say, I really don't know of anybody who's able to love me. And I want you to notice that the first thing that we're brought, that's brought to our attention in this sign about Jesus is that somehow Him being glorified is directly attached to His love of these people. Now I think it's imperative that you read in this text that He loves them because there are several things that are going to come after this that are going to go, well, that doesn't strike me as when I think about love. And let's move to that second part. Look at what happens here. We're told Jesus loved Martha and Mary and Lazarus so he waited he stayed two days longer in the place where he was now doesn't that trouble you see isn't the first sign of someone loving you is the fact that when you call and say I've fallen and I can't get up they show up I mean that's the first rule right I, you, the one whom you love is ill. Get on the hippity hop and get here. Jesus loved them, and you could say, well, that's easy for them to say, but no, you see that they know Jesus loves Lazarus. That's why they write to him. The one whom you love, the one whom you cherish, the one whom you've demonstrated for years that you care about is ill. Come quickly. And Jesus waits two days because he loves them. Now I want you to think about this and think about what it starts to tell us about Jesus because what it starts to show us about Jesus is this. He seems to understand what human beings need in ways that human beings don't understand. The average human being. Because see, we're going to see the rest that plays out through the drama of this part of this Gospel of John is this frustration with why did He show up? This could have all been avoided if He just showed up. And He didn't. Somehow His timing was not their timing. And oftentimes what maybe this is pointing to is is that Jesus' timing in our lives is not our timing. That the way He chooses to do things Oftentimes, for us personally, it's frustrating to where we say, Lord, if You just had showed up two days earlier, all this problem could have been avoided. But has it ever dawned on us as human beings that maybe the reason why the problems are there is so that our stubborn, hard-hearted, simple minded ways might be exposed and that we might be drawn to see the reality, truly, of His love. Don't you see, if Lazarus doesn't die, the rest of this story doesn't happen. There's something critical in the timing. There's something critical about how Jesus loves these people. It also begins to point us to something that that goes on, because Somehow in the midst of this, Jesus is going back, and they've already threatened to stone him, and so we see this commitment of his disciples, albeit kind of this this half-hearted, weak kind of commitment. But do you notice what Thomas says towards the very end? He says, I'm committed to Jesus. You know, he's I don't know why, but he's he's determined to die, so he's heading back towards Jerusalem. Let's all go die with him. He kind of has this resigned carpe diem, sees the day. Let's Let's just go with Jesus. But there's a sense in which I want you to see. Jesus' commitment begins to overflow into his disciples, even in almost half-hearted ways. He's going to go die. We might as well go die with him. But at least they're beginning to figure out that they might be called to go die with him. And we see that the love of Jesus for them begins to flow and they begin to show their commitment even in the face of death. The ultimate striking statement comes in verse 15 in the love of Jesus when He says, Jesus this is verse 14, that Jesus told them plainly Lazarus has died and then this statement in 15, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there. Here Jesus is again being Strange. You're glad you weren't there. You're glad your friend whom you love died. And then listen to what he says. So that you may believe. You see what Jesus is really up to. He's up to something. And what he's up to is that they need to believe something. That somehow what's happening here is a matter of great importance. You need to believe something. Which means you don't really believe something, but you need to. And that's why this whole thing is going on, so that you will believe. Well, that moves us into the second part of this drama unfolding, and this point will be under the revelation of Jesus. Now, we go through this whole section here, and Jesus comes, and he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days, and we know now that Bethany is near Jerusalem. It gives us all this information. And then we get down here to Martha coming and speaking to Jesus. And it says that Martha said to Jesus in verse 21, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. There it is. Your timing is off. If you'd showed up on time when we first wrote to you, my brother wouldn't have died. Now, in one sense, we don't want to scold Martha. And the reason why we don't want to scold her is because you'll notice Jesus doesn't. See, her statement is true. She knows, in fact, if Jesus had showed up, Lazarus' illness could have been taken care of like that. She knows. She believes. She trusts in his power and abilities. And then Jesus says to her, Lazarus will rise again and Martha again, as every good faithful Jew would have known, of course he will rise again in the last day. Lord, the only part of the Jewish culture that did not accept this as fact was the Sadducees who denied the resurrection. But the rest of the Jews understood and had a hope that one day, someday, they would be raised from the dead. There was a hope, an expectation of ultimate resurrection. But then Jesus makes this incredible, amazing, revealing question. And we see that part of why Jesus has led her up is to be able to say this. It's almost like He knew where the conversation was going and let it come right to this place so then He could say... Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then he asked her that profound question. Do you believe this? Before we move to her answer, I want us to think about this. The idea that Jesus is getting at with Martha is this. Martha, I'm everything you need now, not just everything you need in the future. But it begins with the future. I am the resurrection. I am the resurrection. Not you're going to have a resurrection. It's not really what he's saying to them, it's not really something that's going to happen to you as much as it's, it's something that is a reality because of me being united to you. It's really about me. It's really about what's going to happen to me that becomes essential for you. That's your hope. It's me. I am the resurrection. But then he comes back and makes that second statement because he couldn't have just stopped there and said, I am the resurrection. Believe in me. Here I am. The reality of the resurrection. But then he goes a little step further. And the life. What's he getting at there? Is he just saying resurrection all over again? It's just a, another way of saying it? No, he's not. What he's really saying to Martha is, I'm not just the resurrection of future hope. I'm the life of present hope. See, it's not just the future that I'm discussing about I am life itself right here. You have no life apart from Me. He'll go on and tell Thomas that in John 14.6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. There is no life apart from Jesus. That's His claim. There is no hope After you die apart from Jesus, He is the resurrection. And that must mean something critical as we begin to evaluate whether or not Jesus makes a difference in people's lives. Now look at what Martha's statement is. What a statement of belief. She said to Him, Yes, Lord, I believe that You are the Christ, the Promised One, the Anointed One of God. The Son of God, who is coming into the world. What a statement. She responds with belief to the revelation that Jesus makes to her. Let's keep moving further into this story. Jesus weeps. He comes to this place where he exposes his heart. So we come to the third point, which is the heart of Jesus. Jesus. Now, this whole section here has created some dispute among some who have said, well, is Jesus deeply disturbed? Is he angry? What's really going on here? And I want us to kind of think about what's happening here. The notion that somehow this is all an internal reality that's going on within Jesus does not fit the language of this text. What's really going on here is Jesus outwardly expressing anger and frustration. And let's look at why. This is what happens. When Jesus had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now, Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. And we see here that Mary gets up and goes out. The Jews follow her because she's going to cry. And probably some of them are professional mourners. They hired professional mourners, so they've got to go out and do their job. Mary's going to weep at the tomb. We've got to go with her and do some weeping. But there was probably mingled among them people who genuinely knew Lazarus and genuinely were concerned about Lazarus. So you see all this weeping going on. Now it's interesting, and for those of you that know somewhat of the Gospel of John, you'll find this striking. Remember earlier on we find that Martha's in the kitchen, busy, 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 busy bee, got to get this fixed, got to get this fixed. Jesus, tell Mary to quit sitting in front of you, listen to you teacher of the way of eternal life, and get in here and fix some food. And Jesus says, Martha, you're worried about so many things. Mary has chosen that which is better. But in this text, we find the exact opposite. Martha shows up and says, I believe. I know who you are and I trust in you. Mary comes with blinded grief. She just is weeping. Lord, if you've been here, my brother... And notice that Jesus responds very differently to Mary's grief and the people around her's grief. The language in Greek actually says he snorted. That's why I'm saying it can't be some internal, Jesus is feeling some angst. He snorted. He was angry. He was moved. It made him mad. Their unbelief angered him. But then it moved him. See, we're seeing something of the heart of Christ. First, he's angry. But then he's moved to weeping. Why? Because he realizes that the reason why all this is going on is because of sin. The reality of sin brings misery and despair and death. And Jesus weeps. Not so much over Lazarus, but over the whole circumstance that has brought them to this place. That here he stands looking at people who are sinful, and will not believe even with the reality of life standing right in front of them. They're so overwhelmed by sin and despair. What we also see here in the depth of Jesus' emotion in all this is that in verse 38, Jesus deeply moved again, came to the tomb. What we see here is something of the depth of Jesus' emotion. He hurts with us. He hurts for us. He hurt with them. He was hurting with them because it grieved him. He hurt for them. He was hurting for them. It saddened him with their condition and he was in a position to do something about it. And ultimately what we're going to see what is being set up here is that he is going to hurt because of them. He's headed somewhere. He's headed to a cross because of sin. And the last thing I want us to look at as we look at Jesus actually raising Lazarus is the power of Jesus. Look at what happens here. Then Jesus deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor. And I want to just say to you that it's really nice that our English translations like to really make things. It it actually says, Lord, it will stink. It's putrid. It will smell awful. Now see, we see the old Martha kind of slipping back in there. You know, it's it's very untidy. (laughs) We see that part coming in. But Jesus' command prevails. His action and command, He says, remove the stone. And look at what He says to her. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Now I want you to see again something of the heart of Jesus right here. Do you see how kind... And sensitive it is, he doesn't go, "Oh, Martha, you silly woman. Didn't we just have this whole conversation a little while ago about "I'm the resurrection of the life. You said you believed in me? Why all this fussing?" That's not how he treats her. He shows compassion towards her, and he says, "Martha, didn't I tell you that you would get to see glory if you believed?" In other words, believe. Believe." He compels her to believe, not to scold her and send her away. And then we see this thing that Jesus does, which is incredible. After they take away the stone, Jesus lifts up his eyes and says, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. Again, do you see how overt Jesus is? Do you see how committed he is to people? He'd already prayed. He already had the answer. He already knew what was going to take place. But do you see what he says? I have told them what I prayed, and that you actually listened to me, and that you heard me, and that you've answered my prayers, not for my benefit, but for theirs. All of this is for them. Not for me, for them. I've done all this so that they might believe. Well, there's several things I want us to notice here before as we come to the conclusion, but I want to still look at the power of Jesus here a few more moments. Notice what happens here. After he had said all these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And what happens? You can tell me what happens. (laughs) He comes out. What's that telling us about Jesus' power? Apparently, Jesus has the power to raise the dead. Now, I don't know about you, but if Jesus really has the power to raise the dead, that seems to me to be something that would make a difference in my life. Because I don't know about any of the rest of you, but no matter how much cryogenics you want to spray on this body or hold this body in, I'm going to die. That's pretty sure. The question is not if, it's only a matter of when, and that's true for every single person in this room. So it seems to me somebody that has the ability to do something about death, which none of us do, that might be significant for everyday life. But we're not done there because it goes on and says, The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. And while that may be a subtle thing, I don't want you to miss it. Because ultimately this whole picture that we're seeing of Lazarus is really a picture of the condition of human beings. See, it's a sign. So you need to see it. It's a sign. A sign of what? A sign of the reality that human beings are dead as doornails spiritually. Bound up, wrapped up in sin. And no hope. See, if somebody doesn't come and do something for them, they're going to stink. But there is one who's able to call to dead people and make them come to life. There is one who's able to do that. That's what John is trying to point you to. And not only is he able to bring them back to life, he's able to set them free from the bonds of sin and death. Real freedom brought about by a real gospel. Good news. Now in conclusion, I want us to think about this. Jesus' glory is attached to three things, and I really want you to see this because this is profound the first thing that Jesus' glory is attached to is serving people. Do you see that? I mean, we see Mark 10 right here. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom. So you see that Jesus says, so that I'll be glorified. Ultimately, what we see is Jesus is headed to the cross. That's why this is called the book of signs. All these things lead up to Him being killed. The Pharisees later on towards the end of this chapter in that next section say, if we let him go on, they will all believe in him. It's got to stop. This sign has got to be stamped out. In fact, they start plotting Lazarus' death as well. We've got to get rid of the whole matter. It seems that they believe that what Jesus is up to is making a difference in their world. But for them, they don't like it. And they want to get rid of it. The amazing thing is, is that as they, the more they try to get rid of Jesus, the more they further His cause towards glory. Because He told us earlier in the Gospel of John, if I be lifted up on a cross, I will draw all men to Myself. So we see the power of Jesus in His service to us. We also see that it's bringing us to suffering and death, as I just said. That's exactly where Jesus is going, towards suffering and death. And the final thing that is attached to Jesus' glory, amazingly enough, is belief. Do you you understand the kind of God we're dealing with? A God who doesn't look for us to serve Him, He comes to serve us. Not a God who calls us and says, I want you to come sacrifice. He says, no, I'll come sacrifice for you. And finally, all of that is done so that we would do what? Believe. It's all about us. Who would write such a gospel? No one. What other world religion proposes such things? No one. No one. A God who is determined to care for people who could care less about Him. It's shocking. It's overwhelming. It's incredibly good news that Jesus actually cares about us. In conclusion, then, I want to ask this question. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? Let's pray. Lord, we come before You now and we thank You and praise You that we have this record, a book of signs, which point us to the reality of a God who has come to serve, who has come to sacrifice, who has come that we might believe. And in the midst of all that, He is glorified, and His glory is extended because of this. Lord, we agree with Micah. Who is a God like Thee who passes over the rebellious acts of His people? We are amazed and astounded, and we ask, Lord, that you would fill us and bring us to a place of belief. If there are those here this morning, Lord, who do not believe, who do not know you, would you give them the gift of faith that they might embrace the free gift of eternal life in Christ Jesus, your Son. We pray all this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.